0: Today is the start of a new series, and that series is entitled Dealing With Your Stuff. We all have stuff to deal with in our lives, and the the themes we're going to look at in the next several weeks, whether that's something that you're, you're dealing with pretty well, have dealt with pretty well, or it's something that you're struggling with right now, there's probably people in your lives that you know that are struggling with these in one way or another. So I hope that these messages, as, as, we, as we bring the word of God to these issues, like sin, guilt, and shame, we're looking at today. And then um, your, your broken image of you, how you see yourself and how God sees you. And then we're kind of reverse that with how we see God and the image of God that we have. And then dealing with fear, dealing with grief, which is, which is the deepest form of pain and suffering. So that's gonna be isolated. But then when we deal with pain and suffering, certainly grief is included in that. But we all know there's many ways that, that we deal with pain and suffering that, you know, apart from the worst part of it, and that is death, there's many ways of, of pain and suffering in our lives. And so I hope that um, prayerfully I'll be able to bring from Scripture ways that we can effectively deal with these things in our lives. And I have kind of a tagline on that overall title, dealing with your stuff, and that is paying attention to what you're paying attention to. And I'm going to give credit where credit is due for that phrase. That comes from an author named Kurt Thompson. He is a M.D., he is um, a psychologist, uh, he is a neuroscientist, and he is a devout believer in Jesus Christ and loves this book and knows this book really well. And he brings those worlds together in, in just a, a, a very powerful way. And and this is where I got this in, in a chapter where he's talking about paying attention. He says this um, in, in his book called Anatomy of the Soul. He has another book called... Um, The Soul of Shame, which is one of the most powerful books I've ever read. Um, So if you want to look him up, that's his name. He has, you can also find him on YouTube. Uh, So he does speaking uh, at different places. So if you want to check him out, uh, Kurt Thompson, Kurt with a C, and uh, I'm sure he'll pop up. But um, this is what he says, uh, paying attention. God built in us the ability to pay attention to what we pay attention to. Which creates space for us to hear Him. And out of this flows abundant life, testing and approving God's good, pleasing, and whole will. Goodness, pleasure, wholeness. They all begin with paying attention to what we are paying attention to. And, and we're going to come back to that phrase a lot in this series to, to have, to develop the ability to kind of step back from our own selves and look at what we're looking at. Think about what we're thinking about. Focus on what we're focused on. Pay attention to what we're paying attention to and what that reveals, what that shows us in these various areas that we need to deal with better or maybe deal with for the first time. So today, dealing with sin, guilt, and shame. And I'm gonna come at this from this particular angle. When I say the word sin, uh, of course, Jesus Christ on the cross dealt with all of our sin. He, he died and rose again for us. And, and so if, if you're at that place in your life that you have embraced that faith, whether it was a long time ago or very recently, then we, we recognize that the, the main problem with sin has been dealt with by Jesus. But even after we have given ourselves to him, we we have expressed our belief and faith in the one that God has sent, Jesus the Christ, sin still has a way of creeping into our lives, doesn't it? Sin still has an impact. And even the sins that we committed before we believed still have a way of lingering. And sin has other companions that travel with it called guilt, And shame. And we're going to look at that this morning. So here's my definition for the purpose of this morning of the word sin. I think we all get this and understand. Sin is knowing the right moral choice, path, principle, decision, and willingly choosing the wrong one. Willingly choosing the wrong one. Yes, I know this is wrong. I'm going to do it. Yes, my mother, my grandmother told me not to take that cookie, and I did it anyway. I was wrong. Guilt is the realization and acceptance that what I did was wrong. What I did, that was bad. That was bad. Now now hang on to that distinction, okay? So as I said to the kids, guilt has a good purpose in our lives, a necessary purpose, but it can go way too far. It's like so many things in the physical world. We need fire and water to live, but both fire and water can kill you. (laughs) So so we have to manage it well. And, and, And guilt is one of those things where it's necessary to awaken us to, oh, why'd you do that, Paul? Oh, man, that's guilt. But the problem is shame comes right on in on the heels of guilt and wants to zing you. Shame is the natural impulse to attach your guilt to your identity. Shame tells me that I am bad. That's the important distinction between guilt and shame. They are not interchangeable words. They don't mean, both mean the same thing, even though they often come together, all right? Guilt says what I did was wrong. It's my responsibility for doing it, but it's, that was wrong. Shame says, you are wrong. You are bad. And when you start hearing that enough, you believe it. When I was uh, eight years old, I think it was about eight, it um, it was an Easter memory. It was Easter Sunday. And we had ham for dinner. And my family's a big family, but we had I think my grandmom was there, and probably cousins and aunts and uncles all crowded into the house, fun holiday gathering. And dinner was over, and um, I, don't, I guess they still make these, but back in the 1960s, <laughs> my mom would get a big canned ham, okay? You know Maybe you have one recently. I don't know. Still... Well, now, I, I, I'm assuming that if they still have them, maybe they made them a little bit different, just for safety reasons, and you'll see where this goes. So if, you're, if you remember those, there was this little key and you kind of peel off the ring around the outside and you pull it up. Well, the edge of that can was really sharp. So it was uh, after dinner and my mom, my aunts, my sisters are all cleaning up and um, I'm just kind of hanging out with my cousins and I, was, I came in on my own at one point probably to grab a, a cookie or something. But, um, but I saw this can and for some reason it drew my attention and I started to run my finger along the edge of that sharp thing. And my mom saw me. And she said, oh, Paul, don't do that. You're going to cut yourself. That's really sharp. I said, okay. Mom turned around. <laughs> we'll show her. <laughs> Ow! It cut. It cut deep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, was, it, it was like the blood came instantly. And I grabbed it. And I kind of went... But here's what I didn't do. I didn't cry. I didn't yell out to mom. You know why? She just told me not to do that. And I did it. And now I'm cut. So I, I, I put my thumb in right my other hand and, and ran out of the kitchen, ran up the steps to my bedroom. Now she saw me bolt out the room and the, the trail of blood was uh, pretty easy for the, for the crime investigating team to figure out. And, and so she, she followed me up the steps, and I'm, I'm in my bed, and it hurts, and it's bleeding. She said, she didn't come in and yell at me. She knew I was hurt. Paul, what'd you do? And I said, I, I, hurt my, I cut my thumb, and let's take a look at that. And my cousin, who's much older than me, she was already in college, and she was studying to be a nurse, so well, let me, let me get Cousin Elaine. Maybe she can, and she looked at it and said... I don't know, you might have to get stitches on that, Paul, which I'd never had in my life up to that point, and that kind of freaked me out. But uh, we didn't have to do that. They were able to stop the bleeding, and it, was, it healed up okay. But um, I was never punished for that in the sense of, well, oh, now you're grounded, <laughs> or, or something like that, because the crime came with its own punishment. There was the pain, there was the recovery. I couldn't use that finger. But here's the question. Even though my mother was not a frightening person. She she wasn't one to yell at me or, you know, make me feel really bad or you know, get angry. It, she she was, you know, just a she's a very calm woman. And um, she didn't give me any reason to run, so why did I hide? Why didn't I get the help I needed? Because there's something about sin and guilt and shame That kind of goes boom, boom, boom. And I ran. Today's story from Genesis has these same things going on. This story of the temptation of Adam and Eve that we see. They're in the garden. And um, I'm going to talk mostly about the, the, uh, the, the sin itself and the guilt that came. But just the temptation itself. Um, it's very interesting, if you've never done this, to take the, some time in your own study. Go, take this Genesis 3 chapter and the portion about the temptation between the serpent and Eve, and then open up another scripture to Jesus' temptation by Satan, which you'll find in several of the Gospels. And uh, Matthew 4 comes to mind, I think. But um, And then look at the similarities that the tempter uses in trying to get Eve and Adam to partake of this fruit they were told not to partake of and the, the attempt by the tempter to get Jesus to bow down to him or to turn the stones to bread and the other temptations he had. It's very interesting to see the similarities there and of course Jesus was successful in fighting off those temptations and Adam and Eve, not so much. So the temptation involved several things. It's doubt what God said. Did God really say that? Create the doubt. That's what the tempter does to us. To doubt the rules. To to denial of the consequence. Well, God said, if we eat this, we're going to die. Nah, you're not going to die. You're the exception to the rule. You can get away with it. Nobody's looking. Nobody cares. Everyone else is doing it. All of those thoughts that we are, are common to all of us in whatever ways that, that we are most frequently or have been most frequently in our past tempted, that, that still works. That, that's why this, this tactic hasn't changed. In all the history of humanity, this works. And that's why, you know, the tempter keeps doing it this way. Desire for knowledge. God's holding out. He's, he's, you know, he knows that if you eat that, this, this fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you're going to be like God. You can be your own God. You don't need God. And all that kind of played into this, these moments as she's looking at this fruit and then seeing how pleasing it is, how appealing it is. And not just that it's a beautiful fruit that's going to be delicious, it is also just, it appeals to, to so much more. Just the way it looks is appealing. And, and temptation appeals to our senses. And so these are kind of the, the, the elements of temptation that we see at work already here in this first temptation of mankind that we have in Scripture of um, Adam and Eve. But then they, they give in and she takes the fruit and she shares with Adam. Oh, by the way, when you read that scripture, it's pretty it's actually pretty clear that Adam was there the whole time. He just let his wife do the talking. <laughs> so so don't don't try to let him off the hook, all right? <laughs> and as he does in a moment try to blame her. But so the guilt comes very quickly. And and they um they, they realize that uh, something's different. And, and they realize that they're naked. Now, now the guilt is a realization. We did that and we shouldn't have. And then here comes shame. To whack them. Shame says you're naked. And it's more than just a lack of clothing. It's vulnerability. It is a sense that I am not enough. Now, our physical bodies do that a lot, don't we? Don't they? Like, like we, we look at ourselves in the mirror, dressed or not, and we, we, we evaluate ourselves. We say, I look good today. I look terrible. I wish I looked better. I love this outfit. I hate this outfit. I wonder who else is going to notice this outfit. Will anyone notice? My hair is terrible. What happened to my hair? We look in, our, in the mirror and we evaluate. And we measure up ourselves to see if, if we are enough when we go out the door am I enough in this world this is, this is all happening instantaneously we are now, we had this beautiful existence in this garden where we were together and for whatever amount of time it was from the time that, he, that God made Eve for him until this sin happened um, I, a friend years ago who's always had a way of being very um, pessimistically funny, you know I was preaching about this, and I said, you know, um, we don't know how long it was until they gave in to the temptation after God told them not to eat that fruit. It could have been, it could have been five years. And my friend said, yeah, and it could have been five minutes. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know. So they feel vulnerable. They cover up. We try to cover our tracks. We try and see if anyone noticed and, and take away the evidence we cover up and then we isolate. Now, they isolated, just they, they were at least isolating together, but that wouldn't last, okay? Because when God confronted them, they began to blame each other. So, so if, if God had basically said, All right, you're both out of here, I don't want to see any of you ever again, goodbye, which he didn't do, he did kick them out of the garden, but he didn't leave them. You see, there's, that's a big difference, right? But let's suppose God had done that they'd be blaming each other and they would have gone by themselves. Now, when when God created Adam and he gave him responsibilities like um, take care of this garden and name the animals, and at some point God realized, and he says this exactly, it is not good for a man to be alone. Now, that's more than creating the female and having a wife and having that relationship. It is that. But it's more than that. Just on its core it is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for a woman to be alone. We are designed for connection. We are designed for community. We are designed for relationship. We are designed for, for being with other people. And what shame does is it tries to make us alone again. So you just had God saying it is not good for man to be alone and the enemy comes in and says, oh, I'm going to do exactly that. I'm going to make you alone. I'm going to get you away. I'm going to break that, your connection with God. And they were hiding from God. And eventually he'd work on that connection between Adam and Eve. And they'd break apart too if God didn't hang with them. Because it's not good for us to be alone. Isolation. Fear. When God you know, came to them. Now, I, I love the way it's described in the story. In the cool of the day. It was, it was morning, not real early morning, but the sun's up. It's, it's kind of shooting through the trees, and they're, they're kind of wet with the dew yet. And the sun's cutting through. Maybe there's a little bit of mist in the air. It's, it's a beautiful setting. And God is walking in the garden. God's walking. He took on human form. Some theologians believe this is a fascinating theory. That that was actually Jesus, pre-born Jesus, obviously. But we know that the Christ is eternal. So would the Christ take on that physical form in that moment? And there's other moments in Scripture where that might be the case. So interesting theory, but nonetheless, in some way or another, God had manifested Himself in human form. He's walking in the garden. They knew what His footsteps sounded like. He's walking in the cool of the day in the beauty. He's not stomping. Where are you two? (laughs) Wait till I find you. You're going to get it now. No, that wasn't the response of God to the first sin. That should tell us something. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about our image of God. And if, if your first instinct of God is fear, because he's going to get me. Because, because it, you know, lightning's going to strike me or something bad is going to happen because I, I disobeyed him. Now there's, there's a price to pay. Well, yeah, there is. It was Jesus on the cross, and that's done, okay? So the price is paid. Don't, don't, don't hang on God, an image of fear that he's waiting to get you. Because even when this first sin is committed, he's coming to them gently. He's calling to them, knowing full well what had happened. He says, where are you? Now, you can look at that question a lot of different ways. Physically, they were in a bush nearby, hiding behind something. But where were they? Here. Where were they? Here. When we have the courage to admit to ourselves and to God that we've done something wrong, hear that question from God. Where are you? Why are you in that place in your life right now? What what, what brought you into this moment, into this situation? Where are you? And hear that voice gently. Not a voice of condemnation. There is no more condemnation in Christ. Romans tells us that very clearly. Book of Romans. So, there's fear that he came. So, when... When I I ran upstairs, when I cut my finger, when I was eight years old, I was afraid. I didn't need to be afraid. Nothing my mother ever did before that should have had me respond in fear to that moment. But that's what shame does. Shame wants to make you afraid. Shame wants to isolate you. Shame wants you to blame someone else. And what do Adam and Eve do? Adam, did you eat from that tree? He's asking him gently. Well, yeah, but it's her fault. Eve, did you eat from that tree? Did you give him the fruit? Yeah, I did. Where's that snake? <laughs> Blame. Pass it down. Or just flat out deny. And this is what shame does to us. Because shame, once it starts to latch on to, the, to, to our heart, to our mind, to our very soul, it, it doesn't want to let in any accusation. It doesn't want to let in any truth. Even though you are responsible, not, just at all costs, protect yourself because, because you don't want to feel bad, do you? And anything that comes to make you feel bad is your enemy and is wrong. So turn it around, deny it, blame that for how you feel because you're not supposed to, quote, feel bad. And yet, the good aspect of guilt in our lives does exactly that and needs to do that. We need that sense of remorse. We need to know how much we hurt somebody with our words. We need to know the consequence of our action. We need to feel the pain of what we did. And, and sin is rarely isolated. You know, it, it involves other people usually. And, and so we have to feel that. But that feels hard and horrible. And then, then shame will take that and say, See, what I tell you? You're no good. But there is another avenue we can travel. And we'll, we'll touch on that in a moment. So why did Adam and Eve hide from God? What did God ever do to them that they should be afraid of him? He did warn them that they would die, but they ate the fruit. They're still alive. didn't say anything about that. They're starting to feel woozy. You know, this wasn't Snow White's apple, okay? This was a warning that the end result of this, that they would someday die, so... They're not facing death in that moment, but they're still afraid of God, even though He's come to them gently. Later on, another sin was committed, far worse than picking from a fruit, I think, and that was a brother killed his other brother. Cain killed Abel. And when God came to them, again, He's walking to Him, and He calls out, basically, Where are you? What have you done? He's not angry. I mean, he's he's upset about it. This shouldn't have happened. But you see, the God we see walking in Genesis is a gentle God. Remember this too. When when Adam and Eve are created, they, they were created first and foremost as image bearers of God. That connection with God was first. That relationship. Now sin affected that and, and sin broke that relationship to the point that eventually God would have to have his son come to set things right again on the cross and in his resurrection. But we begin from a place of you are valuable. You are loved. Yeah, you've got sin. Yeah, you feel guilty. And when you embrace shame, that's a hard place to be in. But you know what? You are loved all Away through. That's the God we see come to Adam and Eve. That's the God we see exemplified in, in the person Jesus Christ. That's the God who loves you right now. And if, if, again, if we have that fear of God, it's, it's from ourselves. It's from, it's from a, a distorted image of, of what, who God is in our own hearts and minds. Because we don't have to be afraid. Jesus said to come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. What wears us out the most? It's our own mistakes. It's, our, it, it, it's the remorse for the things we've done. Or the things that others have done that have affected us. But still, it, it's all part of the same, you know weariness and burden that we carry and then Jesus says take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I you know, am gentle and you will find rest for your souls we're going to work together on this and you will find rest that's the gentleness of Christ coming to us in our broken sinful guilt ridden and even shameful condition he Loves us always. It wouldn't be a bad idea to start every day with what I just told the kids to do. Look in the mirror and say, I am loved. And say it till you believe it. Or at least believe it a little bit more. But shame does have its way of working its way in. And there's a couple of impacts of shame. There's more than this, but these are the ones I want to feature. Um, first of all, there's fear of exposure. When the story of shame has taken hold in your heart and mind, it will protect its position through isolation and retaliation. So, we already covered that a little bit. Run away, hide, or attack somehow, or blame somehow. And you see both of that here in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. Another way of saying it is, is fight or flight. You know, are you, are you the run and hide kind of person? Are you the. Where are they? Let me get at them, kind of person, you know. And maybe some in different contexts were each of those, but neither of them are helpful in the end. Because we're, what we're trying to do is we're either running away and hiding because we don't want anyone to find out. We can't bear the thought of them knowing that I'm this bad. That the again shame is telling you you're that bad. Or we're going to fight our way through and blame someone else and, and, and cast the blame onto them and, and, and deflect the pain onto them. Um, I was talking with someone just this week about um, they, they got the, their voice of shame and that, that's how this author I mentioned uh, refers to it a lot in, in his book, The Soul of Shame. The, the voice of shame tells you what to believe and eventually if you're not... If you're not impacted by the grace of God, then you start to believe it. And and so this this individual's, um, you know, one parent was telling them how no no good they were. Or don't do that, you're gonna fall. Or don't try that, honey, you're gonna fail. It sounded innocent, it sounded like protection, but um, eventually she's afraid to try anything because all she ever got from the parents was, you know, well, you, you don't wanna mess up and that's too painful. And maybe that parent had their own things they went through in their lives where they fell and failed and they didn't want their child to experience that. This is all part of it. This is what shame does to us. We are afraid to be exposed. We are afraid to have people look at us and, and, and even the thought of them believing or thinking that, that I'm broken, that I'm failed, that I've done this, that, or the other thing. And, and by the way, the thing that, that, that we want to hide most carefully and most most viciously and passionately is the thing that tells us no one else has done this but you, you're the worst. And that's not true. In fact, when we have the courage to begin to admit to ourselves and to God and to others that which has broken me, you know what that does it reaches someone else who is in fact going through the same thing you went through and they thought they were alone that's the power of 12 step that's what AA figured out that instead of hiding your problem with alcohol you sit in a room with people who've suffered the same thing and are walking through the same the same process and you admit openly to them, I have this problem. And you're supported and you're loved and you're not rejected. That's what the church should be in so many different aspects. To, to, to connect people with the various things that, that we are dealing with. With the sin, with the shame, with this guilt. And then come together and, and support one another through it. So that we can walk into that place of healing together. You're really not going to get there by yourself. Why? Because it's not good for us to be alone. You can learn alone. You can read alone. You can study alone. You can pray alone. And I'm all for all of that. But at some point, you've got to find the courage to step out and believe that somebody out there can help me. Here's my pain. Please. And, and, and the way to do that, the means to do that is, is you know, something that the church has to, has to have various avenues for it to, for it to come through safely and, and where they will indeed be welcomed and protected. But you don't have to walk with this stuff alone, and shame just does that. So afraid of exposure that it just keeps isolating and retaliating, and you know what? People that live like that indefinitely are the most angriest are, are, and then saddest people that walk this world, everything is everyone else's fault. It's never mine, and and it's just it's just a sad way to exist. And they can be scary people too. So much built up anger. And the other impact of of shame is. <clears throat> Did I hit that wrong, er. Yeah. Advance the slide, please. I think the battery went. Is it not going? Okay. There There it is. All right. Thank you. (laughs) The second impact of shame is false identity. Shame can become the author and publisher of your story. It defines you by failure, insufficiency, regret, mistakes, and sin. You don't just believe shame's story... You become that story. As I said a moment ago, the, the, the child that hears nothing but negativity from mom and or dad about how no good they are and how they'll never amount to anything will probably fulfill that. Or at least it'll be hard to overcome that voice. And they begin to wear that voice. And that's the other thing about shame. Shame doesn't just depend on guilt. Shame uses all sorts of avenues to, to you know, to isolate you, to keep you down, to make you feel like you are less than, to make you feel like you are nothing but broken, you're no good rotten. And, and so it, it'll use the voice of others, even things that aren't true. It does, shame doesn't care if it's truth or if it's a lie. As long as it gets you to believe it, then you start to live it out. So we have to tell better stories about ourselves, and we have to get to those places in our lives when guilt comes and see the opportunity we have to go on to a different path. The path from guilt to shame is short, it's quick, it's easy. It reminds me of a passage in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus says this, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it this is not just talking about eternal life heaven or hell that's kind of the very end of the, the result of this it is talking about the here and now so so it, it kind of looks like this you've got Two ways. When guilt comes, there's that moment where you realize, I did this and I shouldn't have. I hurt myself. I hurt somebody else. That, that moment, okay? Which way are you going to go? The, the wide path that everybody else goes? The one that shame's kind of pulling you toward? Yeah, go ahead. You, just, just lie about it. Deny it. Blame somebody. Just, just, you, you don't want to deal with this. Everybody goes this way. And that's the way of shame, but there's a smaller path over here—the narrow way that Jesus speaks of—and and that is the way of grace. And the way of grace is—it's not an easy path. It will be filled with pain because you are indeed facing your pain, but you are also getting healed of your pain, which never happens from shame, never. If you want to be healed of your pain, you have to walk the way of grace. You have to walk that difficult road, knowing in some way it is difficult. But but here's the difference between these two paths. The the wide path, the the way the world goes, the path of shame, which leads to destruction, is filled filled with fear and denial and blame and anger and condemnation and rejection. And and the first step is isolation again. That first step, go by yourself, get away. You don't want anybody to see you, hide it. But the path of grace, the path to life, not just eternal life in heaven, life, real life, true life, abundant life. The life that that, that that God's called you into. The life that he created for you to enjoy. That he has fulfilled in, in Jesus Christ. And through faith in him you can experience that and touch on that. That's real life. And that life has peace and belonging and restoration and connection and acceptance and forgiveness and repentance. Which path do you want? And the first step to there is repentance. Repentance means to turn. Repentance means I'm going to go here and isolate and reject and get mad at people and be really sad. You know what? No, I'm going to admit that I did this to myself and to God. And and if I hurt someone, to them. And I'm going to start walking that path of forgiveness and of acceptance and connection. All those things. That's your choice when guilt strikes. The path of grace or the path of shame. So pay attention to your guilt. What's your first instinct when you do fail? Do you go back to those ways? Or can you develop something new? Don't let shame tell your story anymore. And if you're like me, shame's got a pretty strong voice. It does in this man, believe me. Oh, Paul, you're stupid. What'd you do that for? What'd you say that for, Paul? Yeah, and and, and just again and again, these little things. Just keep nipping at me. And so what I have to do, what you all have to do is, is tell a better story about ourselves by paying attention to what we're paying attention to and then intentionally and um, in, intentionally um, thinking different, thinking better. And we'll close with this today <clears throat> from Philippians. Chapter 4, verse 8. Familiar verse, but think of this verse, no matter how many times you've heard it, think of it in the context of paying attention to what you're paying attention to. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Lord God, may we be a people that think well of ourselves because that's how you see us. You see our brokenness, but you also see first and foremost your child, your image bearer, who you love, who you've never left. If there's any leaving going on, it's us from you. So help us, Lord God, to tell good stories about who we really are in you. And to learn that and to grow and to get that voice of shame quieter and quieter and quieter. In your name I pray, amen.